Hi, this is Time Capsule, episode 191, and I'm Tony Talato. Hey, this is James Marsters on Sci-Fi Talk with Tony Talato. Hello, this is Michael Emerson of Law. I'm Peter Weller. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton. I'm Michael Cerverus, the Observer from Fringe. Hi, this is Miracle Laurie from Joss Whedon's Dollhouse. Hi, this is Ryan Robin. This is Ben Browder from Farscape. Hi, this is Jane Espenson. Hi, I'm Brad Dourif. Hi, I'm George Takei, and I listen to Sci-Fi Talk. Avengers Age of Ultron continues to set records worldwide. Chris Hemsworth, who returns as Thor, discusses what he wanted to do differently for the second film. I wanted him to. I wanted to sort of get back to you know the sort of fun he had in the first film a bit, and oh. make him a little more kind of grounded and and and, and just just humanise him a bit. You know, it's very easy for these characters to become unrelatable and exist off in the stratosphere, and you know, and and this was about uh, you know just making him more human. You know, and we see in one of the first scenes in the in the trailers, we've seen the the scene where they're trying to pick up the hammer and they're in casual gear, and it's like, what do these guys do when they're not saving the world? And that was fun for me. And and uh, any time we got to do that and sort of play around with us was was the best part. Look for my behind the scenes Avengers video from my series Behind the Curtain on YouTube, and also there you can see video interviews with the cast and director Joss Whedon. And it's also available at SciFiTalk.com. Here is more with Rosario Dawson and Charlie Cox from New York Comic Con as they talked about their hopes for their series, Daredevil. In a perfect world, this is what our, this is what our great hope is, is that, is that this show will appeal to, to audiences who aren't necessarily fans of Marvel or superhero fans. Um, it, it feels to me like, I, I really think that the, I, I'm cautiously optimistic that the fans are going to be really pleased with this show. I think it's really, it's really exciting and new and gritty and dark and different and, and, and it, it ticks so many of the boxes that you want a superhero uh, uh, show to tick. Um, but at the same time, it kind of, it, it's sophisticated enough that it, uh, the writing is that it feels like it's more like a, uh, a crime drama with a superhero element like peppered on top. You know what I mean? So it's, it survives not because of the superhero element, it survives despite despite it. If you know what I mean, it's almost like it's almost like it's an added bonus. Um, and so, I, I guess really what I'm saying is that is, is that there is a chance that people who have never felt compelled to watch a superhero movie or read a comic could love this show and feel incredibly engaged and compelled by it. Mm-hmm. I love that. No, I think that's really beautiful. You know, when you get I mean, you, for me thinking about it, it's like. You know, we're in the different sort of way of consuming entertainment, you know, and so, you know, it's, it's funny that we had that whole thing for so long and it's like, okay, after it has to be a couple seconds or you have to make a really quick movie, it's got, everything's got to be fast, you got to get to the entertainment and the action really fast, 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 fast. And instead we're going, no, no, let's actually take our time. Let's take our time with the origin story. Let's take our time with these characters meeting each other. Let's take our time even developing the costume, all these, all, all these different things that we normally have to rush through because we're... We're, we're grounding this in reality, and so this would, they'd go back and forth and go, this works better than that, and, and like, let's take that time. And so I love that, that we get that binge movie, you know, we get that binge sort of watching that you get on Netflix, and you can sit there and watch all 13 episodes, or you can pepper it out, you know, you can do that. We, I used to do that with comics. I'd wait and get like 
a bunch of clips right. in a row so that I could I, just get one once a week or whatever and then have to wait and be like the cliffhanger used to kill me. So I'd wait, you know, and get like stacks of comics from my friends or my family and just read the whole thing through or wait for the graphic novel to come out. So you get to, like, people get to play with this and, and consume it in the way that they want to. But when you're doing it in that way and you're when you're doing it to this level and the way we film this and the care that we've taken with it, you're getting basically a 13-hour movie of Daredevil. Like that's that's the level that it's taken to and that's just remarkable. You yeah. know, instead of going, let's not let's rush through this, it's actually go like let's take our time and give you the movie. Let's give you the show that you want to experience. And that to me feels really special. You know, it's it's um, you know, I'm joining the Marvel universe. I've never really done television before, but this caught me because this makes sense as a fan this makes sense and 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 um i'm i'm really i know i'm i'm cautiously optimistic as well but i really feel like people are, the fans are going to really love it but everyone else is going to have an opportunity to fall in love with what i like about hero stories because it is so grounded it is so real you're going to feel compelled you're going to look and go oh my god am i the person who wouldn't even call 911 if i heard someone screaming or am I the person to run in? Or am I the person to run away and pretend I didn't hear? Like, who am I in that situation? You're not going to be able to not ask yourself those questions when you're watching this. And that's really cool. All of Daredevil's first season, which is a must-see, is available at Netflix. Coming up next week is Mad Max Fury Road with a new Max and Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron as Furiosa. This was an exciting one for me. It was, just, And also, I think, at its most earliest of... Uh, awareness, like for me, when I was aware of it, very, very early stages. It was, uh, it's, it's strange to say that you can be that excited about something that you almost know nothing about. <laughs> um, but I think it says a lot about George Miller and his imagination and the worlds that he created and a character that, you know, I couldn't even pull from the, the other worlds of, the, of this world. You know, she was brand new, but I just, I met him once and I just knew, I just knew that it, that it was going to be something really special. Yeah. And then, of course, he so didn't let me down. Returning, producing, and directing the franchise is George Miller, who talks about Max and Furios. Tom has so much going on inside. His mind is a very quick mind. Uh, his emotions are very, uh, are very free. So when you have a stillness or when you need him to be very laconic, you still sense a very an intensity in there. One of the things that flashed in my mind that there should should be a female warrior, uh, the equal of Max, and that she's fleeing across the wasteland, and Max reluctantly gets caught up with her in this post-apocalyptic world after after the fall, as we call it. She is has lost. She's become a hard-bitten warrior. I'll have more on Mad Max Fury Road next week when the film opens. Always good to see an old friend done new, and hopefully with more than just car chases and explosions. The Geek Initiative launched this Monday. From the latest Everything Geek episode 21, Tim Byers of the thefullbleed.net and Justin Cavender of geeklegacy.com and I talked about the initiative and what it offers. We all worked together at San Diego Comic-Con uh, this past uh, year, and... It was really the first time we all kind of teamed up, and I just thought it would be cool to make it something a little bit more permanent, and it's the Geek Initiative. In a nutshell, it's kind of like the Avengers, where 
we all come together and really do something special, but we also have our own thing going on as well. And then to launch things off, we have the uh, Geek Initiative uh, at connectpal.com. And this is actually a premium site. And what we are featuring there is our content all combined in one place. It'll have podcasts, videos, and also in PDF forms, some of the interviews we've had. Uh, great stuff already. Um, and I'll let the guys talk about a little bit uh, more about their stuff. Uh, I, ha I just posted all of my uh, Walking Dead transcripts from and podcast interviews from San Diego Comic-Con and also my Tribeca Film Festival uh, pictures as well. So, uh, so Justin, talk about um, what you guys have on there on, on the Geek Initiative uh, premium site. Absolutely. Um, we... A while ago, we had a crazy nerd off as to which Indiana Jones film was the best, and uh, I thought that was a great idea to include that. Uh, we're going to be pumping out a lot of individual uh, podcasts specifically for uh, the Geek Initiative. Uh, Dave, Randy, and I have the craziest conversations, and we decided that we're just going to start recording them so everyone can be a part of them. Uh, anyone that listens to the Geek Legacy podcast knows that Randy throws out a crazy list for us each week. Yeah. And um, people that subscribe to the show can submit their own list that we'll be happy to, to read on the show. Or you can even come on the show and read your own list. And we can either, you know, we'll give some, well, Dave can always defend your list if you want. So you don't have to worry about being berated on how horrible your list is. If it's a top 10, top 5, whatever, we're happy to give you a platform to to share your opinion, uh, this is all about our subscribers, and we want to make it that way. We want to tailor our shows to you guys, so whatever it is that you want, we will do. If you want Randy to dance like a little monkey, we'll make him dance <laughs> like a monkey. <laughs> I like it. I yeah. Like it. All right, Tim. Uh, Tim, you actually uh, it actually segues into one of the things we're going to talk about is the Marvel and DC scorecards. That's all. That's also in the Geek Initiative. Uh, on, on ConnectPal. Right, yeah, I uploaded both spreadsheets. So I keep a public version of the uh, of both the Marvel and DC movie report, and that has some basic data. Like I put the uh, box office profitability up there. So I'm like I'm actively tracking Age of Ultron, and this week, in fact, it, it will be box office profitable. But for the subscribers that go into the Geek Initiative, the there is other stuff there, including the breakdown. So for example, if you want to see how Fox movies have done. It's not available on the public site, but if you want to see how Fox has performed as a percentage of the entire Marvel movie universe ever, I have that in there for subscribers. I have, you know, all of the franchise breakdowns. I have uh, the studios. Subscribers get the unfettered access to everything, uh, but there is, a, like, a, a public teaser. In addition to that, like, I want to do other, you know, subscriber exclusives, so I've got my YouTube channel, and I'll be doing uh, YouTube videos that are subscriber only. Uh, and, and ones that do go public, I'll do subscriber early access. So I'll probably be doing some, some custom hangouts uh, just to take questions from members. What Justin said, you know, it's all about the members. So if there's anything, requests, I will take them. I also chime in. The premium uh, site will adapt to what our subscribers want, and there's going to be much more uh, to come for sure. The site is at connectpal.com slash the geek initiative, all one word.
Director Gus Vandenberghe spoke to me on the red carpet at the Tribeca Film Festival about his film Lucifer. From my survivalist and Lucifer podcast, here is my conversation with him. What's interesting about this film is, uh, is the fact that it's kind of like the beginnings of Lucifer. He's not quite the character that we know uh, in fiction and religion, but, uh, but this is actually based on a, a story. And then you adapted this, and it's also part of your trilogy as well. Uh, was this the natural one to do, to follow up the other ones? And was that all part of the plan? First of all, I mean, um, Lucifer is, in general, evil is, is very good in always adapting. Or we are good in making evil adapt. And so through, through time, you can see how the character of the devil is way more fascinating in any type of religion because it's the one that was the most um, creative in changing forms and also in that sense uh, I didn't want to use a bad devil right I think that was a would have been a big mistake and so about the the triptych because it's not a trilogy it's a triptych because tr trilogy would be one storyline oh, right um, yeah it's it's just um, well the, the three films tell the three times the same thing but in a different way and so this is I said the end of this film I think is well where the curtain uh, opens up and I, I hope that, that that by that end we look at the world differently and, and it's really his beginnings he's not quite he's more the fallen angel yeah. than the devil at this point falling angel yes he's falling in that sense and also that is a very human uh, ca characteristic uh, falling gravity uh, the fact that that, that there's uh, yeah, I think a human dimension to him before it, we were human. In that sense, that's what evil did to us when we fall out of paradise. We were colored. We got all of a sudden, we got depth. We got uh, pain and misery that came with love and wisdom and knowledge. The moment you, you lose something, that's the beginning of art because you want to recreate it. And from that that missing feeling, I think, uh, comes all art. And so it's a very fundamental story in a sense. And it takes place in Mexico, which is an interesting choice. Mm -hmm. And he kind of finds himself in, in a paradise there, literally. And then I guess you could say he kind of learns what he can and can't do. Uh -huh. It's almost like he's learning what his powers are for the first time. Yeah. Um, I found a village that was... Uh, like a false paradise that, that was very close to each other and it, it in real life I mean uh, and it was just nice to work with it also a lot of symbols uh, uh, were offered by the place I was working so yes it makes sense but it's also for me nice to be abroad and to, to become the foreigner to become <laughs> the one that is seeing this place for the first time to be the stranger to be the the devil else you this type of devil yeah because in film a film crew has that 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 same Invasive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and talk about your Lucifer, Mr. Rodriguez. Um, well, he's here. He's right well. here. <laughs> talk well. Yes, he's right there. Ah, I, have to, I have to talk about him. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, what can I say? We, we both talked about the part. Uh, about. I'm sure he will maybe add to that, but that Lucifer would have been the first actor. And in that sense... Uh, Gabino is in a way the first actor I work with in the three films. Three films really are very um, analog films that start from from the basement, bottom up, 
while an actor when he works he comes from up from a different place and he steps into a story and in that sense it was nice to literally use that power that, that an actor brings into this village into this thing and and yeah so in that sense uh, he totally understood uh, the role and it's also quite strong what he did playing with natural actors which is not easy and lastly what you did was interesting you actually developed a different process for the film itself uh, was that you felt necessary to tell the story the way you wanted to tell it well necessary I, you know I work from the belly I, I hope every good filmmaker does that and the explanations in the best case come sort of also afterwards you believe that this is the the way to translate an idea into film language and it's sometimes it especially with with these topics people start to explain a lot and I don't want to make an explanation or a moral point of view I'd like to to translate a almost renaissance idea of, of, of what changing from one time into another from one world into another is and we used it in a very accessible simple way using old roots instead of uh, going to a literal almost pastiche of what good and evil might be in modern cinema. Well, great. Great to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you so Thank much you. and best of luck with no, the movie. Please. Listen to my Survivalist and Lucifer podcast and that is available on the Sci-Fi Talk podcast feed. There'll be more from Tribeca coming next week as well. Spotlight has composer Animog, who scored an interesting SF short called Anomaly, set in the 1960s during the space program. Or is it our 1960s? Here's part of our conversation. The 1960s were such an interesting time, and and this film uh, takes place in an alternate 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that you didn't want to do anything that's period piece, but the direction that you did go in, uh, was it part inspiration from the director, or was it also a lot of your own ideas? Yeah, a lot of it was actually the director Solomon. He he had a lot of ideas of of what he wanted and also what he didn't want. So it it really came down. We had lots of conversations before I even got started about specifically what kind of world we were trying to create and what kind of sounds that wouldn't work. We definitely didn't want to necessarily be literal to the time period. We just wanted to create a world that. Um, you know, the, the, the viewer can step into. Um, so it was just really, yeah, playing around and doing a lot of experimenting with different sounds and textures. We experimented quite a bit before even production began. Well, that's great. Um, and you know, the, the thing is about this type of movie, it sounds like you just kind of, uh, pushed the time period aside a little bit and just really scored towards the movie and maybe what was happening in the movie. Yeah, it was really it was really just trying to create an emotion that uh, this mystery surrounding this astronomical event and you know the world that they were living in it was yeah, it was more about really trying to just establish an emotional connection. You did have some lead time to do this. Uh you know, you had some time to score this. Yeah, we we uh the film actually started out like as a 3 minute little piece and then it it turned into a much longer short film so but in the beginning i was I had plenty of time uh to just come up with a lot of demo cues and and just we, we, we'd go back and forth between me and the director i had plenty of time to do a lot of demo cues and a lot of the demos i originally created ended up in the actual film now they evolved a little bit but it was just more about finding 
a place for them to work in the film. What's interesting is that this film uh, was a what now they call crowd crowd raising or crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an interesting way to bring movies these days. Uh, what's your opinion on that? I mean, it's definitely very different. In the old days, you just go to a movie studio and mm-hmm. you just would pitch them the idea, and then they would green light it, and then they give you the money you need. So having this option is definitely uh, changing the movie industry a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, the crowdfunding, it, it to an extent, it, it kind of you know it gets a lot of people behind the project, and and um, it's it's great for a startup film as well. You know, if if someone that you know maybe doesn't have the resource to go to get funding from a studio. Crowdfunding seems to be a decent alternative. Uh, at least in this case, it was a really successful campaign. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a great place for films to get made and to get funded. So at least in this case, it seemed to work out. <laughs> you know, it's on Vimeo, which is another way to see a movie, which is online mm. too. So that's something that's new. Um, as a composer, in some ways, because it's always online, and instead mm-hmm. of playing at a limited run at a theater, does that? do you think that gives you a little bit more exposure than maybe if it was just playing at a theater for a week or two and then it's it's uh, then something else comes in? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I think it depends on the film and depends on um, the strategy behind it and the marketing behind it because I think with this film, they specifically wanted it to be streaming on Vimeo rather than do any kind of uh, releases, alternative releases. Uh, they just wanted to get it to get it to as much audience as they can, especially the Vimeo community, is who they were really targeting. Interesting. And as far as I know, a piano is is your your sort of instrument of choice. The the piano metal, mel- melody that's in the movie uh, was it any specific idea that kind of led you to that, or was it kind of like a little melody that was playing in your own mind? Yeah, well, the I originally wrote a melody that was a bit more busier sounding than that, and then Solomon, the director, would come in and keep simplifying and simplifying to the point where I was eliminating lots of notes and just holding notes for a while. But yeah, so it turned out very simple, uh, but emotional. And it was it's meant to kind of work within the film with, with the scientist Noel Fitz because he sits down at the piano at some point in the film and he plays that theme. So it's it, it's meant to kind of gel together, you know, almost as if it's not a studio record but a location record that's also incorporated into the score. And and using electronic music, um, I, I guess uh, it there's a temptation to kind of go overboard with it sometimes. What's your feeling on how you like to use it compared to maybe other composers? Well, as far as electronic sounds, I use I like to use sounds that that might be electronic in nature, but it, but still feel somewhat organic mm-hmm. in emotion. So for me, you know, if if a score is uh, you know overly electronic, it can take away from the human aspect of it. And this was a very human story, so any kind of electronic sounds I used only to support the organic sounds that were there, not to necessarily overtake it. And how much of the film did you see, you know, completed when, I guess some of the score was already done, so um, Mm -hmm. 
well, did, how much of the film did you actually see when you sat down and kind of fit the yeah. music to the film a little bit? Yeah, well, I had about, I'd say about 30 minutes worth of demo cues written before I even saw a cut. But then they would, as they were shooting, he would do a rough edit together and send me footage just so I can see the grading, the coloring, and just, you know, the world that they were creating. So I would then I would go in the demo cues and kind of tweak things and send it back. And a lot of these cues influenced the way he shot it as well and the way he chose to edit certain scenes. Mm -hmm. But once I did get a pretty good draft of the cut, that was then a matter of all, you know, connecting the dots and putting these cues together and seeing what works. Um, so it was, there was a lot of work to be done once I saw the edit because it was, you know, a lot of these cues needed to fit with the scene. Sure. And then some were written from scratch as well. Mm -hmm. So when you're editing your music, I guess, um, it's very different than editing the film itself, obviously, because it's a melody and it has to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, gel. So, uh, yeah. I mean, how do you approach it? Do you sit at a piano or do you do, you know, on a computer to kind of, uh, you know, to kind of pare it down a little bit and make it fit? Yeah. Well, you know, some of the demo cues I would actually have to rebuild from scratch. Wow. And, and with slightly different timings just to fit with what he's trying to achieve in the edit. Mm -hmm. But again, he would, some things he would edit around one of the cues. Oh. So I wouldn't even have to touch the timing. So, because he's, he's really a fan of having music beforehand that he can edit to. Yeah, some of the work was already done. But then, yes, you're right. Some cues needed to be rebuilt to get the melody working just right with the timing of the video. But if it was slightly off, he would just go and shift some of the scenes mm -hmm. to make it work. Look for this interesting SF film anomaly at Vimeo. It's certainly worth watching. And that is Sci-Fi Talk Time Capsule, Episode 191. And I'm Tony Tolado. Thanks for listening. This is Matthew Spradlin, co-writer of Bad Kids Go to Hell and writer, co-creator of True Believer for Sci-Fi Network. And you are listening to Sci-Fi Talk.